Dotnet Rocks, episode 1061, with guest David Dennison. Recorded Tuesday, October 28th, 2014. Now, welcome back to .NET Rocks. This is Carl Franklin. And this is Richard Campbell. And uh, here we are. I'm in uh, on the east coast of the United States. Richard is on the west coast of Canada. And we do this every every week, three times a week. At least. Through the magic of, uh, what do we call it? We should name our process here by which we record stuff, because it's really unconventional, isn't it? I Yeah, well, and I'm just gloating because we've had such a good day of I tricking rigs and yeah making it work really well but yeah we take our audio stuff pretty serious and it's working out yeah you you redid your rig right yep rebuilt and it's always terrifying right right to just actually get it plugged into getting firewire plugged into the new machine get the mo to behaving make sure each of the channels works and then are you recording from Skype are you recording from the phone can they hear each other yeah it turns out it's not trivial to get this stuff working right it's a lot of steps and and there's some you know oh you forgot to switch the configuration on the microphone on that machine okay that now it doesn't work right all right well uh, I got something good for a better no framework so let's roll that crazy crazy music hit me <laughs> All right, buddy, what do you got? So what I got is uh, something we've talked about on the show one or two times, and we even talked to its author. Um, I'm not sure it came up, though, but it's Automapper. Oh. Yeah. Jimmy Bogard. Yeah, Jimmy Bogard. This is the project that got away from him, you know? It was just something yep. he, he needed for himself, and it's now it's become a thing. So it's at automapper.org. It's a convention-based object-to-object mapper, 100% organic and gluten-free, and takes all the <laughs> fuss out of mapping one object to another. And that's really what it is. You look at the page, it says, Automapper is a simple little library built to solve a deceptively complex problem, getting rid of that code that mapped one object to another. And it's, this code is dreary and boring to write, so why not invent a tool to do it for us? Nice. He did a DNR TV with you like five years ago. Yep. How about that? Isn't that cool? That's great. It's I did great not stuff. know that. Yeah, well, that's great stuff. So that's it, Automapper. If you need it, you need it. Yep. No, yeah. learn and love it. Yeah. All right, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off of show 1040. Which is funny because that was the call sign for the radio station I worked on years and years ago. <laughs> uh, and that's the show we did with Martin Range where we talked about F-Sharp and his work actually contributing to F-Sharp. You know, that it's really an open source project. Mm -hmm. And I love that it didn't go well. Like that made me so happy. <laughs> right? Because that's what real life is like. <laughs> and he's so smart. He does such cool stuff. But he botched getting involved in F-Sharp. And just he worked his way back. But it just yeah. made me happy to see that. Because it's like that's how you learn. And it's like, yeah. hey, you know, there's a process here. You've got to work with the folks and, you know, don't write code first, which is what he did. He just coded right away. And, and if you haven't heard the show, go listen to it. It's, yeah, it was it's a, great. It's a great show. So much fun. This comment comes from Ralph Tricky, who says, uh, has anyone looked into morphing the Rosalind VB.NET grammar into being able to parse VB6? I mean, Rosalind is open source. Replacing the VB6 libraries would be more challenging, but I think that parsing would be a relatively simple problem. We we touched on that with Kathleen Dollar, didn't we? Yeah, we did. And it, yeah, 
You know, I, funny that he would even mention VB.net because VB.net has more in common with C Sharp than it has with VB. And he's talking VB6 here. And he wants to, yeah, exactly. You know, that, but we've always said that. It's just like uh, Visual Basic was so dramatically different. It was the only thing they had in common with each other was the name. Right. And I mean, because a lot of the stuff in VB6 maps to com objects. Right. You know, in, in, granted, so does .NET. But I mean, you basically have to write a .NET layer, you know? Yeah, it would be very challenging. Uh, And Ralph goes on to say, I remember VB6 uses several libraries and runtimes would have to be rewritten eventually, although the parser could probably be calling out to the existent libraries initially. (sighs) Oh, it makes Uh, my head hurt just thinking about it. Well, yeah, because now you're going in and out of managed space, right? Like, it's just horrifying. Mm. Somebody's doing it. And part of me wonders if we're not going to get to a place where you're, like, literally going to run a VB6 emulator. Remember, like, you can get a TRS-80 emulator for your PC? That's right, yeah. Because it was 1998, dudes. Yeah, I think that's (laughs) probably more accurate of what's going to happen. We talked about that with Kathleen, too, that, you know, uh, application virtualization is what's going to happen here. And it's already happening on Windows. Yeah, it needs to be easier. Yeah. Does. But, you know, uh, over on the run as side, I've got shows coming up exactly in that space. We're talking about application virtualization mm. and virtualized desktops for these kinds of issues. The challenge in my mind is keeping a working development environment in Visual Basic. Are you actually going to maintain an app? Right. And that gets into the control suites. I mean, that's the punishment. Most of these companies are gone. That reminds me, Richard. More people need to listen to uh, Run As Radio. It's a great show that you do over there. Thanks, dude. Yeah, it, I mean, it's IT-oriented, without a doubt. But it is, uh, you know, we're dealing with exactly this stuff. Windows 10 has been disruptive. I did a show with Manassi about that. was hilarious, yeah, actually. Yeah, All the reason it was 10 and not 9. It's good stuff. Uh, and it's yeah. stuff that developers need to know, too. It's just Absolutely. more IT-oriented. Yeah. Uh, and Ralph finishes up with, uh, uh, I'm not saying it's a simple operation. It isn't. I haven't looked at Rosalind in detail, so I know it would be involved. It's always easy if you haven't looked too closely to say we could do this. Right. Uh, <laughs> but I have written a parser in Pascal, so he's not coming from a complete place of ignorance. Right. Uh, a pretty format or simple lookup utility, so I do have a sense of what's involved. And Ralph, I'm with you. I don't know how useful it is, because I think it's more the ecosystem issue when it comes to Visual Basic. Just getting the grammar isn't going to save you. It's it's all those darn controls. But uh, we'll see what happens. Either way, .NET Rocks mug is on its way to you. And if you'd like a .NET Rocks mug, write a comment on the website at .NET Rocks.com or in any of our mobile apps. We've got them for Android, Windows 8, iOS, and Windows Phone 7 and 8. That brings us to our guest today. David Sean Dennison is a software engineer at iTrellis, developing applications using Scala, Akka, Spray, and other open source tools and technologies. In the 15 years prior, David had worked exclusively on the .NET stack on everything from simple web applications with ASP.NET MVC for digital libraries to aerospace engineering and analysis as contractor to the U.S. Navy, the finest military organization in the world. Go Navy! He lives with his wife, son, and two cats in Seattle. Go Hawks! (laughs) And his free time, he enjoys imagining what he would do if he had free time. Welcome, David. (laughs) Hey, what's going on? What is this free time you speak of? (laughs) I love a good bio. That's awesome. (laughs) Go Hawks! Well, it's actually, you're legally required to say that when you move to Seattle, That's when you, you get your driver's license, you know. You win one here. Super Bowl uh. and we can't live with you anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the truth is, I'm from Detroit. We played hockey, so I'm not even really sure what the Hawks are, but I know oh, that I have to say, go Hawks. Right. It's like hockey, only the 
puck keeps going up in the air. Yeah. There's running too. It's it's yeah. very strange. It's very strange. And it's always misty. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> and the Red Wings are a fine organization. Mm-hmm. Evil, but fine. Finest oh. hockey team in the world. <sighs> hockey Town. <laughs> I watched them play in San Jose. I watched Datsuit play in San Jose. I that guy's a hundred years old, still skates faster than most cars could drive. So exactly. So if your career was a Rolling Stones song, would it be, I used to love .NET, but it's all over now? (laughs) (laughs) No, you know, it's it's a strange place to be, actually. What has happened to you? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I like to blame a little thing that I call Ted Neward. Oh, Uh, God. Don't we all? (laughs) Now, I, I got recruited to iTrellis by Ted Neward. We met in Baltimore, and uh, we were talking about joining his company. And at the time, I thought I was going to be doing a web application that was going to be JavaScript heavy. And then the conversation sort of turned in from JavaScript to Java. And then we got from Java to Scala. And by the time we got there, I was already on the payroll, so it was too late to do anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> Almost the same. Almost. Yeah. So one of the things in your bio that um, intrigued me was a language or a DSL that I had never heard of called Spray. What is that exactly? Yeah, Spray is a, a DSL, so it's a domain-specific language. It's written using Scala and Akka, so it's fairly abstract and what it's designed for is creating rest apis as painlessly as possible so if mm. you th- if you think about it from a .net point of view you know before web api we were all coding in wcf and so you would have you know long code files with all sorts of handling backed up by a constellation of configuration files that you know, one misstep and your whole API comes down. Right. And with Spray, what they're saying is, we don't need all of that. Let's keep it simple and clean. So you open up a, a code file and literally just type, here's the endpoint. So you'll have a, a URL and then say for get, let's do this. And for post, let's do that. And it's very, very simple. So, well, what is involved in let's do this and let's do that? Uh, what do you have at your fingertips there? Whatever you can imagine, really. Mm. You can hand off to a, another class to perform an operation. You can hand off to another service. You can hand off to uh, a, a working progress. And that's really what you want to do is this is really just for creating the endpoint and the, and the interfaces. And then you just hand it off to something that's already written to, to, to do the work. Exactly. It's, it's sort of like a, a series of nested steps. So the first step would say, you know, for this, this URL segment, right? So like we go .NET rocks would be our root, you know, slash ping. Then, for that ping endpoint, you would then nest to the next level and say, you know, for a get operation, you just type get. And then your next level of nesting, you would say complete. And within that complete line, you would specify a string of, say, pong, 
right? So when the client calls your API to .NET Rock slash ping, they're going to get a response of Pong. And that's okay. all there is to it. It's, it's three lines. Wow. And does this work on a, on a Microsoft platform, on, on any platform? How does, it, how does it actually work? The, the whole stack runs on the JVM. So okay. you've got, you know, you're it, building up. You start at the lowest level with the JVM, which mm-hmm. is, you know, running your Java, you know, Tomcat sort of situation. And then Scala, which is the, the root language, I guess we'll say, which when Scala is compiled, it compiles down to JVM bytecode. And then Akka is, has been sort of incorporated into Scala with the guys over at TypeSafe. And that's a, uh, follows the actor pattern. So it's designed for distributed high concurrency. And then, Sitting on top of that is your spray DSL. So you everything works together, and then when you compile, you compile down to bytecode, and off you go. Nice. And, I mean, this seems like a neat little tribe of these three pieces together for building services, I guess, primarily? We're using it to build services, but the beauty of it is you're absolutely right. It's a, it's a tribe of just pieces that you can interlock. So... If you want it to have an API, there you go. If you want to serve up static web content, there you go. If you want to have a, a web application, you can do that as well. Because as far as the system is concerned, it's really just shuttling data back and forth. It really doesn't care what kind of data or what, what kind of format. That's pretty interesting. So in, so in general, your story is one of coming off of .NET and sort of getting, finding all the neat little things that uh, Java has to offer or the JVM has to offer. So we did a show on Akka uh, a little while ago, but tell us about that uh, just in a nutshell. About Akka? Yeah. Uh, Akka is really interesting. You know, it's, like I say, it's based on the actor pattern. So you have, you know, a constellation of individual actors who are responsible for a single operation, you know, and the way I often think about it is, you know, an office, you know, in a, in a paper-based office, you have someone who generates a document and then walks the document over to the next person. They do something to it and hand it off to the next person. And it goes around the room until it's complete and goes into the manager's desk, you know, and a decision's made. Mm-hmm. So, the actor pattern sort of follows that model in that a unit of work will enter the system and the actor will perform an operation on it and then send it to the next actor along the line. And what the upshot of this is, is that it's built for distributed and high concurrency and the state only exists within the actor. So you're maintaining state for a millionth of a second and then it's gone. Yeah. Yeah, that's uh that the whole actor pattern we we did this great show on it and it just blows my mind every time we talk about things like this. Um uh and Scala of course is a language that runs on the on the JVM. What is uh the what is Scala's thing? It's that it's functional. It's functional and it's object oriented and yeah. uh it's absolutely fascinating. Um What's his name? Martin Odersky, the guy who created it, took the view of let's make a strict 
interpretation of object-oriented programming. You know, take all the OO principles that we know and love, like encapsulation and inheritance and things like that, and really just lock in on that. And then let's go across the street to the functional side of things and, you know, parse out the, the most strict interpretation of that. And once you've reduced them down to their essentials, let's merge them together into a single language. Hmm. So you can sit down to write Scala and you can write a classic object-oriented application with no functional anything, or you can write a purely functional application with no object-oriented aspects to it. And, or you can write a a hybrid of the two. It's really wide open. Hmm. And it all runs on the JVM. So it pretty much runs everywhere if you want it to. Indeed. And what's even more interesting is that it's byte compatible with Java. So when you're in there writing your Scala code, if you find something that Scala doesn't do natively out of the box, but you know how to do in Java, you can simply start typing in Java and the Scala compiler will understand what you're doing. Ha! That's really neat. But it also be a violation, you know, like that's risky too, in the sense that going functional and using stuff like Akka to minimize mutability and so forth, you could break all that by throwing some Java code in there. You do have to be careful. You know, there was a, uh, back in the, in the old days when people were still sending jokes via fax, there was a, uh, wow. a, a thing. <laughs> just sucking on that callback for a bit there. <laughs> I just turned off my last fax machine and I'm not unhappy about yeah. it. But, wow. Well, there was a, there was a joke that went round where they were saying, you know, with the various languages, they would say, C, you write an application and shoot yourself in the foot. And then they came out with C++, you know, you write a bigger application and shoot yourself in the foot. After performing a little bit of ceremony. Yeah. You know, and they got down to PHP, which at the time was the most complicated thing anyone was doing. And they said, you make a gun, you shoot yourself in the foot, but the gun is made of 300 other weapons. And <laughs> that's awesome. When uh, when I got into Scala and I started having to, you know, get my head around, I can write Scala, I can write Java, I can also write XML natively in this setup. And then I started bringing in Akka and I started bringing in Spray. I started thinking, yes, I am building a weapon to shoot myself in the foot with. A thousand other weapons here, right? You know, you can really shoot yourself well. <laughs> it's not, yeah. yeah. Well, that's that's a big gun you got there. Uh, C plus plus is it's your foot. <laughs> that's the old joke. Okay, yeah, and and in fact, we've been we've been retelling those jokes on the show over and over again. They just never get old. Facts or no facts. All right, so um, so we have these. These uh, these languages and these things that work on the JVM. Now the question is, you know, we we got an idea of when to use Spray, but what types of pieces of the application work best with Scala, and what does Akka or the Actor model uh, work best at? What I've been finding in the work that I've been doing is that you know. Akka really shines when you have a lot of discrete tasks that have to be performed. You know, one of the things that you try and and teach people when they come into programming is you take a unit of work and try and break it down into as, as small a piece as possible 
so that you can have it, you know, broken up by individual method or whatever. And where Akka is just brilliant is in handling those discrete use cases. So, you know, for example, we're on a project right now where we're working with student information in the Puget Sound school districts. And we want to transfer student records from one school to another so the, the kid can turn up at the other school. And so to shuttle that data between systems, you know, we have to handle in, encryption and decryption, uh, data parsing, XML validation, and then ultimately write that as a file to an endpoint. And so for each step in that chain, we have an ACA actor that's responsible for handling that unit of work and that unit of work only. So if there's a problem, you only have to look in one place because it doesn't exist anywhere else. What's also nice is because it's based on actors and not pipelines or chains, it's immediately asynchronous and distributed by default. You would have to go out of your way to set it up in a synchronous linear fashion. Yeah, okay. So, so orchestration might be a good word, right? Yeah. Oh, that, that's, that's the best way to put it. Yeah. It's easily, you're easily capable to orchestrate many operations concurrently to achieve coordinated results efficiently. Now, would you call that like workflow operation? You know, one thing happens and another thing happens like chaining or, or is it more like, you know, do these, these five things need to happen concurrently and when they're done, we need to move on and do this or based on, some decision we can branch to logic or whatever. All of the above, really. Yeah. You know, in the use case that we're using it right now, it's fairly straightforward. It's it's A, B, C, D, E. You know, but it would be just as easy to put some conditional logic into any given actor saying if condition A is met, go to this actor. If condition B is met, go to a different actor. And you can actually start setting up, like you say, various chains of response based on you know, dynamic parameters. You know, in a lot of ways, it reminds me of the event-based systems that Ted Faison was writing about, was it, God, 10 years ago now, with his event-based systems work, in that based on ambient conditions in a system, you can trigger different event chains to yield a result. Yeah. Okay. Okay, and uh, so, and Scala? Just, you know, your basic functional workhorse, working with lots of data. Yep. And where that one really is interesting is when you get into set operations and collections. They have a, uh, a collections API built in that looking around online, people either really love it or really hate it. And I think the reason for that is that it's highly opinionated. It, it has very clear ideas about how it wants you to use it. And if you go off the map, it, it will break and go crazy and misbehave. So the tools are fighting you, you're going the wrong way. <laughs> exactly. Which, frankly, I appreciate. You know, yeah. as someone coming into it fairly raw, it helps keep you on the straight and narrow. You know, yeah. and if I find that I am arguing with it or fighting with it, I'm probably doing it wrong. Right. Okay. Wow, that's cool. So are these your main uh, toolkit languages, or do you find yourself going back to Java at some times? Do you ever miss C Sharp? Um, yeah, I, there are definitely times that I miss C Sharp. You know, there's a, it's been a, a situation where 
for my entire professional career prior to joining iTrellis, I was working in .NET. You know, I and came into the game with VB.NET, you know, .NET 1.0, switched to C Sharp, and that's all I knew. So you don't realize how much you've internalized until you go into a completely different environment. And you find yourself, you know, banging your head into the desk saying, you know, my kingdom for a property with a getter and a setter. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) You know, give me something I understand. And, you know, because you've been arguing with the same two lines of code for an hour. And they're winning. Exactly. You know, you actually have to like walk away from it. But then when you come back to it and really think through what it is that you're trying to do, what you find more often than not is not that the language is failing you, but that you're holding the wrong mental model in your head. Right. You know, and that you're trying to think in a C-sharp way with a non-C-sharp language. You know, mm-hmm. you really have to sort of turn that on its head and say, okay, I am now Scala. How would Scala do this? Yeah. And while the route may not be immediately obvious, once you find it, it's perfectly clear what would scala do <laughs> <laughs> and you're know. not that far out of realms you're still living in a managed world sure. right like i think that java developers and c sharp developers have a lot in common sure compared do. to say c plus plus developers or or you know as soon as you get out of the managed space where you, you know you don't have to, you're not sweating memory still yeah. and for everybody living outside of the managed space they spend a lot of time dealing with the plumbing of memory that's true, you, you know, and it, it's funny you say that because the what I'm finding is that you're right. The .NET and Java developers have more in common than not, but if you bring that to their attention, they stick their fingers in their ears and say, "No, no, 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 no!" <laughs> la 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 la! I can't hear you. Right. And and the fact is, I was one of those guys. I mean, for a lot of years, I genuinely believe that java was an acronym for just another vague acronym (laughs) 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 you know but i can't i can't make that joke anymore so you know (laughs) you're there yeah you're there it's you (laughs) (laughs) it's now you is it is there any way that in your platform and in the the stuff that you do that you can actually use c sharp oh that'd be a challenge wouldn't it um I don't see why not. You know, when you're dealing with these situations where you're talking about actors and endpoints and everything is is loosely coupled and distributed, you know, I don't think it would take a lot of imagination to, you know, create an actor-based system that is interacting with, you know, Java code, Scala code, .NET code, or even, you know, other other entirely different languages. You know, if you wanted to go really dark with it you could probably get it to talk to com objects <laughs> yeah because you just wanted to suffer i love how you said going dark with it in com <laughs> yeah that's that is what it is if you didn't care about your soul anymore <laughs> well you know one does not simply call a com object yeah that's right no one lives with the consequences for years yeah well richard yeah, buddy. You know what time it is. Uh, it must be that happy time again. Yep. Time to build a new joke out of 300 other jokes. <laughs> Tell the joke. <laughs> wait for the crickets. 
take out the gun and shoot myself <laughs> in the foot. Nice. How's that? That's good. You got it all in there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I still got it's got full set of callback. <laughs> it's actually time to give away a D experience subscription from Developer Express to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. But before I tell you who won today, become a UI superhero with DevExpress UI controls and libraries and deliver elegant .NET solutions that address customer needs today and leverage your existing knowledge to build next-generation, touch-enabled solutions for tomorrow. Whether it's an Office-inspired application or a data-centric analytics dashboard, DevExpress Universal ships with everything you'll need to build your best without limits or compromise. Learn more and download your free 30-day trial at devexpress.com slash superhero. All right, buddy, who's our winner? Today's winner is Mario Cornejo from Tijuana. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations, Mario. And he just won the D-Experience subscription from DevExpress. Big pile of awesome from them. And if you don't know what we're talking about, go to .netrocks.com, click on the big Get Free Stuff button, answer a few questions, and join the .NET Rocks fan club. We have thousands of members all over the world. In every show, we like to give away stuff from our sponsors. And every December, we give away $5,000 worth of technology to one lucky member of the .NET Rocks fan club. And we like to ask our guest, David, if you had $5,000 to spend on technology today, what would you buy, sir? Oh, uh, you know, I've given this a lot of thought. And uh, I really, my stumbling block was that it was $5,000 of somebody else's money. So, <laughs> you know, my first thoughts went immediately to the black market. But then um, sort of reined it in a bit. And my eight-year-old son and I do model rocketry. Yeah. You know? Nice. We were members of NARHAMS, which is the uh, National Association of Rocketry Traptor for the uh, National Capital. Hmm. And uh, we used to do our launches out of the Goddard Space Flight Center in Greenbelt, Maryland. Wow. And so we always thought it was, it's always a win win because if the rocket launches, it's cool. If the rocket explodes on the launch pad, it's Dude, awesome. cooler. <laughs> exactly. So if I had five grand to spend, I would go and I would get Raspberry Pis and all the little uh, electronics gadgets that makers are into because we've decided that we want to build real-time telemetry into our model rockets such that when the thing launches, we get a, a real-time stream to a tablet showing us altitude, speed, pressure, that sort of thing. And hmm. give, given that uh, it, we would probably burn up several boards and components on, you know, bad launches, I think I could go through five grand pretty quickly with that. Yeah, only 35 bucks a crack. I'd be worried about weight. You just get a bigger rocket. Yeah, it's just a bigger <laughs> rocket. So the answer is always a bigger rocket. Exactly. There, I mean, there I, are, there's nothing that can't be solved by a bigger rocket. Well, I'm just saying, you know, the Redstone launches back in the early 60s. I mean, come on now. You can't do any worse than that. Hmm. Uh, what was it? Explorer 1, where the rocket goes up uh, like 20 feet, and then it just comes straight back down, and you even see the satellite just sort of fall off the rocket as the whole thing <laughs> explodes. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that you know? sucks. I mean, they, they set a high bar, so, you know, it's yeah. okay. <laughs> it's okay. 
Man. Just last night, uh, there was supposed to be a rocket launch from Virginia, but they scrubbed it, and it's going to be tonight. And this is as of this recording, so don't worry, you missed it. But uh, we're going to see what happens. It's a rocket launching from Virginia. Oh, they we do should, that quite regularly. And we should be able to see it in uh, in Connecticut, where I live. Fun. Exciting time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right, let's see. We, we got to dive back into this, because I, I think... I think everybody like me is kind of flabbergasted the idea that you walked away from a skill set in a way. Like how much new did you really need to learn? Um, all I can really say about that is that it was part of the game. You know, we were living around the national capital in the Washington DC area and essentially woke up one morning and decided we were tired of it. So we sold our house, we sold all our stuff and I got a job in Seattle and we moved. Right. You know, walked away from everything. And since we were in the spirit of change, I said, you know, I've been working in .NET for 15 years. I pretty much know how it works. I think it's time for something different. You know, and how radically different could I possibly get? Yep. You know, yeah. and on so the surface there- anyway. Well, and, and even under the covers, you know, you figure, you know, in your day-to-day life working in .NET, you're in Visual Studio, you've got yeah. this IDE that, you know, really helps you out, and you don't realize how dependent you become on it until you're in a situation where you're expected to deliver work, that you know, quality work, using the command line and a text editor. Right. You know? I guess that's a piece we really haven't touched on yet, which is probably a huge deal, which is just the what's the dev environment to all of this? It's radically different. You know, it's one where you you're typing code based off a model in your head because you don't have IntelliSense to help you explore and you don't have, you know, IntelliSense walking you through setting up your methods or making calls. If you want to know where a you know, a class resides in the library that you're using, more often than not, you have to go find the website of that library and paw through the source code to and trace it yourself. Yeah. Right. You know, it's a lot of the stuff that Visual Studio just sort of hands you isn't there. You're on your own, which on the one hand, you know, is, is frustrating in the extreme because you're used to having all of these conveniences. But on the other, when you come out the other side of the work that you're doing, you find that you have a much stronger understanding of what it is you're trying to do and a a much better understanding of your tool set, which in the end makes you better. Right. In a way, you've taken off training wheels that you didn't even know you were wearing. Exactly. Exactly. You know, and it's not to say that there's not a lot of pain, you know, often you hear people talking about the learning curves associated with going from you know, Visual Studio or .NET into another language. And, you know, there's a lot of frustration around that. And I think a better way of looking at it is to say that it's not a curve, it's a wall. And you have right. to climb You have to climb it. Huh. And it means nothing until you get to the top of the wall. Exactly. You know, but once you get there, you can see the whole field and it starts to make sense. Have you done any .NET code since? Like, is it familiar to go back there? It is. It's it's actually kind of neat because, you know, once you get to the top of that wall and you really start to see, you know, where the language creators are going with this or where these open source projects, what they're meant to be, 
you know, solving, mm -hmm. it really opens your mind up to possibilities that you hadn't really considered before because everything was just sort of handled for you. Right. But it, it gets you thinking in different ways. So, you know, I look back on .NET projects I had done and really think, wow, I wish I had known this open source stuff at the time because I could really apply it there. So I've, you know, gone back and written some C sharp code that I, you know, tinkered with on the side. And I find that it's really been informed by the work that I've been doing outside of .NET. Sure. And we hear that but, from everybody who ventures out of .NET land is that no matter what you're doing, you use a different language, a different platform or whatever, it informs you as a C sharp developer. Well, and really, it makes a lot of sense because you figure if you step out of, outside of software development as a discipline and just look at other areas, you know, if you only, if you grow up only speaking English, it, that is going to inform your worldview. But then if you learn Italian or French or Chinese, it's going to alter how you think about language and how you think about communication. Yeah. You know, and like with music, even, you know, if you grow up only playing guitar, and then learn how to play the piano, it's going to give you an entirely different perspective on music. Right. Yeah, you absolutely get a broader view to these things, and you start seeing what actually relates to each other. I, I have a friend who speaks eight languages, and he said, after the third one, they're all pretty much the same. <laughs> <laughs> but he said, and I, and I can see that from program. I mean, I've had that experience of program. We've all had that experience of program. Yeah. There are certain metaphors. Objects are objects. doesn't matter what the language is. If you've got objects, you've got certain patterns you know you can expect. I think functionals like that. You get functional into your head, you start thinking in certain patterns, and the language is sort of immaterial at that point. Immaterial to a point, because each language is going to have inherent strengths and weaknesses. You know, there are going to be things that a language does very well and other things that the language just overlooks entirely. You know, like... For example, C Sharp is very good at simple, uh, you know, line of business type things where I have to move data around, I have to get a class, an object model going, and I have to, you know, get these classes working together quickly. You you can't touch C Sharp on that. You can get an application going in no time. Right. You know, but if you want to do you know deep calculations or heavy processing or you know science and engineering. If you're using C sharp, you probably should revisit that decision. Right. You know? Whereas if you step into some of these functional languages that are optimized for, you know, heavy calculations or heavy analysis and engineering problems, then, you know, you're going to find that that goes very smoothly. But then when you try to wrap an application around that using a functional language, you're going to struggle because it's not really what it's designed for. Right. And so it's one thing to just be able to make it work and use your old met metaphors. It's another thing to understand what it's good at and uh, how to really take advantage of it. Like I'm looking at, I've been reading Spray and just thinking, you know, we've done lots of REST endpoints. Like this is not magic, but it sounds like you almost can't go wrong here. You, you really kind of have to go out of your way to do it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And trust me, I found that way a couple of times, but. <laughs> You know, but yeah, they, they really have made it as simple as possible, you know, which is great. Well, and it just gets to this idea that we, we tend towards general purpose languages. And then 
you, you're frustrated because they're so general purpose, they're not actually, quote, good at anything. When you actually deal with something dedicated like this, right. it's good at one thing, and it's really good at that thing. Exactly. You know, it's it's like the old joke, you know, when all you have is a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And then you sort of get to this middle ground where you've got some experience with multiple general purpose languages. And what you find is you just have different hammers, yeah. you know, and what what you need is a screwdriver. You right. Know? Yeah. And uh, I can't tell you how many times that phrase has been uttered on this show, but it's so <laughs> true. It wouldn't be if it wasn't so true. Um, Can you... Give us a, a sense of um, if her, if if somebody is you know sitting at home listening to this or a C sharp developer and they're thinking yeah you know I really want to get into another language but uh, but I'm not sure what and there's so many options here where should I start if I just want to w- broaden my horizons a little bit I mean not necessarily all the way to what you've gone but where should I start um. If I had it to do over, I think is a better question. I think yeah. I would back my way into Java first, you know, because it's very similar to C Sharp. And once you've got a handle on those differences between C Sharp and Java, then the other pieces would sort of fall into place. Okay. You know, because like once you once you've got Java, and then you can get into Scala because they're so because they're compatible, you know. And then once you've got into Scala, you've then made your way into the functional space. And then once you're into functional, you can, you know, start exploring those languages and even circle back to F sharp if you want. Now, isn't, hmm, how do I say this? Java is so much like C sharp. That's going to be a pretty easy transition for most people. I imagine the, the biggest learning curve would just be the tools. Exactly. And that's really what you want, because the idea is you don't want to shock your system. You know, to go from C Sharp straight into Scala, you know, you're going to discover that it's a wall and not a curve very Mm. quickly. And your head's going to hurt, you know. Whereas if you can take it in sort of like baby steps and sort of ease your way through it, you're going to wind up spending more time learning the concepts and really getting into the meat of the matter and less time struggling over syntax yeah you know which is really just a source of frustration sure is yeah you know i mean a great uh, case in point you know when i was working strictly in net i really struggled with javascript you know i looked at javascript and to my eye it was just a mess mm. because it, it didn't seem to have any real structure to it and all of the the things that you rely on in .NET, like the static typing, simply don't apply. Right. And, you know, I mean, I, and I really worked at that. And so once I got started in, in Scala and the JVM and all these other languages, what I noticed as a side effect was that JavaScript started to make more sense and I could sort of see the shape of it. And, uh, you know, uh, Crockford's book, Javas, the, the good parts. Mm. Right. Suddenly made a lot more sense, <laughs> you know. Like the, yeah. the arguments he was making fell into place really neatly, and I really wish that I had started this trip, you know, earlier. Yeah. The also question is whether you could have. You know, I, th- I think we have to hit a certain skill level and knowledge level where we can even value that information. Yeah, I think like that's you, true. You can't teach patterns first. You have to write code to understand why patterns would even be valuable. Mm. 
It's like until you're a certain way, until you've been hurt by JavaScript, <laughs> the love that Doug Crockford gives you, you don't understand why it's a problem. <laughs> it's kind of like your parents telling you, you know, giving you advice when you're a kid that you patently ignore. Yes. You know, you know, my father was a moron when I was 16 and was a genius <laughs> at 21. 21, yeah. <laughs> well, it, really, I think that gets down to the difference between training versus experience. You know, you can read the book and you can study the patterns, but until you actually have experience trying to apply, uh, trying to apply it and finding what works versus what doesn't in a real life scenario, you're not going to make that transition successfully. Right. You, know, you really have to step beyond the theoretical and get your hands dirty. Just get and actually get into the experiences around these things. So that you have some idea of, uh, of what's actually going on. Hmm. What do you want to do next, David? Because it seems like you're in a pretty interesting realm. Like once this stuff gets built, uh, you know, I, I Trellis is doing its thing. You know, you only build so many services. Well, you know, there's always there's always work to be done. Sure. Uh, and when it comes to you know high concurrency distributed applications, you know integrations. Hmm. You know, there's no shortage of opportunity. You know, the sort of the guiding principle that I follow for any given project is, you know, is it making things better? Is it improving the situation for someone in a, in a real and measurable way? You know, that's why I'm really enjoying this work with the school districts. Yeah. You know, so what I would really like to get into with now that I'm getting more into the functional side of things is to see if we can start applying this to, you know, more scientific approaches, you know, to say, okay, here we have a system that, you know, does e-commerce or, you know, financial calculations or, you know, big data, you know, let's explore data, see what kind of patterns emerge. Since we have this, you know, capability to, you know, do all these operations in near real time in a distributed fashion, just think about the processing power you could bring to bear on, you know, really large questions. Mm -hmm. For sure. But, you know, we got to build CRUD apps too. They're not inherently awful. I think what you're trying to say is we got to pay the bills. Yeah. (laughs) Well, building, you know, I, I wonder how much commitment you've made here to, but this architecture is clearly for a very high scaling system and you've, relearned and, and and you know gotten into the skill set it's just a question of the sacrifices necessary to you know you would i may it may not have been your decision to choose to go with tooling that's highly scalable in exchange for some complexity well and i guess the experience has taught me not to fear complexity you right. know, like, like you can you can reduce complexity in a system but you'll never eliminate it completely so you're better off just embracing it and figuring out how you can control it such that it moves the system forward instead of holding you back. Right. And so, and the other side of that is, yes, I'm working in these systems now, but doesn't mean that I'm never going to do .NET code again. Right. So, you know, it's perfectly possible that I could set up a, you know, a, a, a .NET MVC web application that has, you know, a Scala back end driving all sorts of crud applications in a highly efficient manner. Yeah, and you wouldn't and you wouldn't be unhappy. Like that would just work. 
It would. It would just work. It would, and it would be shockingly efficient. Yeah, funny how funny how that would be. I guess the question of what it's not good at too. Like, what wouldn't you use this tool suite for? Shouldn't we all be doing this now? No, because I think then you circle back around to the the hammer and nail metaphor. Right. You know, it's it's one where when it comes to processing, that's where the Scala, Akka, and, and Spray combination really will serve you well. Right. You know, when you're dealing with you know front end processing or web applications, you know, in, in CRUD applications, there's absolutely nothing wrong with .NET and especially ASP.NET MVC. I mean, that is bar none probably the best tool for that task right now. Sure. Well, and it's interesting that we did a show only a week ago uh, talking about Akka.net. Right. So there's been a port of Akka over to, to .net. And it sort of begs the question, could you use F-sharp with Akka and some kind of library to, to get close to the same place? I would think so. You know, I mean, the one thing that I've found and that I've actually been very pleased to find is that the people who are working on these languages and who are developing these tools are just staggeringly intelligent. And when you see these ports come over, it's definitely not a hackneyed weekend project. You know, they've, they've really right. given some serious thought to it. So, you know, you really can reach for some of these libraries with a degree of confidence, you know. So, yeah, I would, I would give it a try. I wouldn't be afraid of it. That's cool. Very cool. Well, uh, Dave, is there anything else that we missed that you want to talk about before we hang it up? No, I think we've just about got it. It's been a, a long, strange trip. Yeah, know? it sure has. Awesome. We'll see where I go next. Well, thanks, David, and keep us posted, will you? I will do that. All right, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net and produced by Pwop Studios, a full-service audio, video, and post-production facility located physically in New London, Connecticut, and, of course, in the cloud. Online at pwop.com. Visit our website at dotnetrocks.com for RSS feeds, downloads, mobile apps, comments, and access to the full archives going back to show number one, recorded in September 2002. And make sure you check out our sponsors. They keep us in business. Now go write some code. See you next time. Got a